Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. So this week we are talking about American Psycho, which many of you will know is a film from 2000 starring Christian Bale. I had never actually seen this movie before. We decided to watch it because it seems sort of thematically relevant to the current moment in American culture. For those of you who aren't familiar with this movie or perhaps haven't seen it in a while, the basic pitch is that it's about a sort of Wall Street guy in the 80s whose extracurricular activity is murdering people. Many different kinds of people, mostly women, but not exclusively women. He sort of gets around different types. And it's sort of a satire on Wall Street at the time, on 80s and yuppies in general, but there's a lot of sort of surreal stuff going on. It's hard to summarize the plot exactly because it's just so bizarre, the whole thing. It's more kind of about mood, I would say. And there's not really a traditional plot arc because he doesn't have a character to develop in terms of, like, you know, emotional progression. He pretty much stays the same the entire time, except that he gets slightly crazier as it goes along. It's a great film. <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of production history stories about this movie. It was based on a Brett Easton Ellis novel that, that came out in the early 90s that was extremely controversial when it was released. Um, I think the original publisher, when the draft came in, refused to publish it because of like morality issues. Um, and then when it was released, it was released in, like, shrink wrap, like, porn, which is just wild. Like, can you imagine I mean, imagine it's great marketing. It's also, oh, like, yeah. it's, I mean, I've not read the book, but it's very fascinating to kind of read through the puritanical history of this movie. Because I watched it and I'm like, this movie is violent. However, <laughs> it's not exactly like, yay, let's go and murder people. And right. God knows Hollywood has done enough movies about how great it is to murder people. Right. Or, or like, films about the military. Or... Dexter. Yeah. I mean, yeah. admittedly, Dexter started, like, I guess, five years after this, but sheesh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interestingly, like, I have I have never read American Psycho, nor will I, but I have heard from numerous people that it is a garbage book. And one of the sort of reactions to it also was from sort of more progressive people and groups and women saying, like, this is really misogynistic and terrible and sort of glorifying this behavior. And then what wound up happening with this movie was that Mary Heron, who is a woman, wound up directing it, uh, and she and Guinevere Turner wrote the screenplay. So the sort of main creative forces behind the scenes of this film were women. And that and has I think a, you can tell. Yes, has a huge <laughs> impact on what the film sort of winds up becoming, despite the fact that it was a novel written by a gay man. Um and it's just so interesting to watch for that reason although also then like she I guess was initially attached to it and then she really wanted Christian Bale to play the lead but the studio thought he wasn't famous enough and then they wanted like Leonardo DiCaprio like or Johnny Depp to do it and she was just like no <laughs> yeah there's, there's I, no. a really amazing interview we can link to in the show notes from 2000 that was a promotional interview for the film and she's very candid about basically having to wait out the studio for literally years so she could make it with Christian Bale. So Christian Bale must have agreed to do this film in his early 20s. And at the point of this movie coming out, the movie that he has in brackets around his name is Velvet Goldmine. So they're like, <laughs> Christian Bale, star of Velvet Goldmine, <laughs> spent three months with a trainer to do this movie. I mean, the character is meant to be 27 and he actually was in his late 20s when he made this. He and Mary Harron clearly had a great relationship because he just didn't work for nine months on purpose he turned down roles so he could do this he made ewan mcgregor turn it down 
out of friendship so he wouldn't do it um thanks well goldmine i guess yeah. <laughs> and oliver stone at one point was trying to make it with Leonardo dicaprio and what i find quite entertaining about this interview with mary harron is that she just straight up came out and was like Leonardo dicaprio is completely wrong for this role it would have been a classic case of hollywood miscasting the role he's too <laughs> boyish and his image has too much baggage because of his teen movies which is exactly the problem that Leonardo DiCaprio is basically his entire adult career has been neurosis about so I feel kind of slightly bad for him because he has spent 15 years trying to get away from his teen idol image but at the same time he's extremely successful and the fact that he felt the need to make Wolf of Wall Street is hilarious to me because it's like having not seen Wolf of Wall Street everyone's reactions to that film plus Morgan kind of comparing them last night when she saw the American Psycho for the first time really it kind of seems like he was trying to make American Psycho after not getting to do it 15 years ago. And it's like, maybe you shouldn't have uh, done that. Yeah. Because the impression I get from Wolf of Wall Street is that it actually kind of does do the stuff that people accuse American Psycho of doing, like glorifying the Wall Street consumerism and that sort of thing, to a certain extent anyway. I I would agree with that. And uh, I mean, I actually enjoyed Wolf of Wall Street when I was watching it. Like, it's very funny. There are things about it that are kind of entertaining. And it's one of those movies where as soon as you're not watching it anymore, it sort of fades. I think for a little while, I still sort of thought like, oh yeah, the movie's pretty good. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, no, no. <laughs> it has some good elements, but basically having now seen this, I realize even more than my sort of dislike of it that had already sort of festered for years. They really did just make this movie except that it was a bunch of men making it and they didn't understand what was going on. So like the interesting thing about Wolf of Wall Street was that people who don't like Wall Street went and saw it and were like, wow, everyone on Wall Street is a monster. And like the Wall Street guys who went and saw it thought it was amazing and hilarious, which is an issue. And I think the movie kind of was attempting to provoke that reaction like I think it was trying to trying to walk the line between those two things so that everyone could watch it and kind of feel that way like feel that it was speaking to them which sometimes can be interesting but in that case it was sort of like no like you don't want those Wall Street guys to think that this is good and also of course sexualization of women in that movie famously is just a nightmare all the stuff with Margot Robbie poor Margot Robbie oh my god but that is not the only thing I mean it's kind of fascinating that Margot Robbie made that then she was in the big short in a cameo extremely hated Uh that film by the way (laughs) and then like around the time she was promoting I think it must have been that she did this um interview with some big fashion magazine maybe Vogue where she did like a parody video of the American Psycho shower scene where she is like American Psycho and she's talking about her beauty routine and it was actually hilarious even though it doesn't really work with a woman I was like yeah Margot Robbie needs to escape all of the terrible roles she's been given (laughs) she does so much with so little (laughs) yes yes but um is Wolf of Wall Street set in the 80s yeah because that's what I thought but one of the things I thought really helped with American Psycho like obviously it would have to be set in the 80s because that's the period it's satirizing but it helps to not make Wall Street look cool because they're all wearing out of date fashion and they're like look at my enormous cell phone and all of the kind of brands they're after seem really uncool so even though it would perhaps have been more admirable at the time people would have been like yeah I love all this like 80s bullshit if you're watching it in 2000 or like 2016 it's removed so you don't have the situation where you're watching a film about rich people getting stuff that you personally want. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> the phones are great. And I always think there's something sort of interesting about period films that get made around just like 10 years after. Because they're close enough that everyone making it 
remembers exactly what it was like. Yeah, because Mary Harron was in her 40s. Right. But also there's enough distance that it's not like you're making a contemporary movie. And so they're very clearly periodizing the 80s. The opening scene takes place in this restaurant where everything is this like hideous pastel color. Oh, it reminded me oh. of the... Um the town in Edward Scissorhands it's like exactly that color scheme and I was enjoying it so much because now most of the time when you see 80s pastiche there's a lot of really intense fashion stuff yeah Um, and in this a lot of it like they did have 80s fashion but they didn't like go really overboard with hairstyles and shoulder Mm -hmm. pads and stuff it was a bit more low-key but the uh, color scheme was just amazing and also just kind of all of the production design the interior decoration for all of the houses obviously Patrick Bateman's pure white house would still basically be quite cool, even though I think everyone now inextricably links those giant nettle fridges with serial killers. Yes. Uh, it's like the same thing that Hannibal has in his morgue kitchen. Um, <laughs> but like most of the interior design is just bland and tasteless, and they just have all these hilarious conversations about who has the most tasteful like thing that isn't tasteful. <laughs> well, all the conversations about business cards as well. Yeah. They're obsessed I mean, the with business, business card cards. scene. Which I've seen multiple times. Like when I started rewatching uh, American Psycho the other day, I realized that like I thought I remembered the film really well, and I just remembered three scenes because there's like two or three scenes that are really iconic, and I actually didn't remember the rest. And it was just so great to rewatch because it's wonderful. But that business card scene, there's many parodies of it. But have you seen the one where they replace the business cards with shiny Pokemon cards? <laughs> Truly wonderful. They're all kind of sharing these little kind of manga cards with each other, and it's like just. Beautiful. It works with basically anything because it's just like a bunch of men being really impressed by something that doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> uh, oh my god. Yeah. There's the sort of like the last, I guess the last instance of someone showing off the business card. Uh, he has this like completely like outraged, erotic response to it. It's just <laughs> like, oh man. <laughs> and they have fantastic music cues. Like people do really remember stuff like Huey Lewis, the soundtrack tracks that are actually pop music, but just the background score of this movie is so good, because they hype up this really dramatic orchestral music at moments that in any other film would be incredibly inappropriate, so during the business card scene, whenever they kind of go into Christian Bale's face, they just have this soaring dramatic music, (laughs) like someone's pulling a gun on him or something, and it's like, it's a business card! So you get this, this score is completely in line with Patrick Bateman's mental state rather than yeah. anything that's happening in the exterior world, except when he's like chasing people around with a chainsaw, but it works right. so well for like just heightened, very comedic melodrama. This movie is freaking hilarious. Yes. It's so funny. It is so funny. Oh my God. Which, like I was expecting it to be funny actually, because a lot of the stuff you see is so ludicrous. Sort of iconic stills or like the ones where he's having sex and is like staring at himself in the mirror and like flexing his muscles which is inherently yeah. an absurd image but it was definitely funnier than i was expecting it to be like it's ludicrous and obviously it's horrible also but i think it's almost funnier than it is awful and i think that's on purpose and i think a lot of that also comes from the fact that women were doing it and so yeah. the way they shoot the awful stuff is very knowing and non-exploitative yeah um, i mean you don't see people having their limbs hacked off and stuff right. like there's one point when he drops the chainsaw on the women it's like really shocking but the parts that are more disturbing and frightening to me anyway are the kind of psychological moments where 
he's clearly being massively creepy and someone either is p- picking up on it and isn't dealing with it or just isn't picking up on it at all. And you can tell that they're really vulnerable. Yes, I agree. But a lot of the stuff either isn't shown at all. Like he'll pick someone up and then they'll cut to the next day and there's a signifying thing that you know that he's murdered someone. Or there'll be some reference that they don't specifically say what exactly has happened, but you know that something bad has happened. And that's actually, I think, way more unsettling. But for instance, he, um, the sort of first big murder that you actually see, see sort of in quotation marks, is uh, Jared Leto, which is very entertaining given what has become of Jared Leto. (laughs) And the whole sort of lead up to this is hilarious because he's sort of spewing this nonsense about Huey Lewis to to him and Jared Leto is totally drunk. Um, And you see him sort of preparing to put on his cannibal-esque raincoat, right? And like grabbing this axe. But then he sort of swings it very violently and the blood splatters up on his face, but you obviously don't see the like body because A, you couldn't get away with it in like terms of getting a rating, but also that would be way too gross. Like it, it, the sort of fantasy element of it wouldn't work if you actually showed that. And also you don't need to, like there's no reason to actually, like we all know what's going on. Like it's not, and it's not about that. It's about his experience of it. Like the whole point of this film is about this guy's weird, homicidal, obsessive tendency thing. And so it's not actually, I don't want to say it's not actually about the, victims because they definitely do also sort of give them room to be like what the fuck is going on but in that case specifically especially Jared Leto doesn't matter at all like yeah I find it quite entertaining that he's sort of a non-entity in this film yeah I forgot he was even in it because I knew that someone gets murdered in that scene but I didn't remember it was him and then I was like oh my god he's in this and in Fight Club (laughs) which we will discuss in a minute because Fight Club in this film fascinating kind of little dichotomy going on there (laughs) yeah well the whole cast was amazing because I don't think I knew any of the actors in this movie except for Christian Bale like I just didn't know who I didn't I had no idea. And, and then Willem Dafoe shows up. I mean, during some of Willem Dafoe's scene, I was literally had like a pillow over my head. <laughs> I was watching it with my friends. And my friend Dad was just like, I genuinely can't tell if you're enjoying this or not. I'm like, I'm enjoying it. I just have to have a pillow over my head. It's so funny. It's so like tangibly awkward. Well, Justin Theroux and Josh Lucas are two of the other like awful men. And um, I love Justin Theroux. And this was very, very funny to watch. And Matt Ross, who now is the, like, lunatic billionaire boss on Silicon Valley, playing a very, very, very different character from the sort of, like, awkward gay man in this. And I, it took me a second, and then I was like, oh my god, that's who that is. Like, what the fuck? Um, I had no idea Reese Witherspoon was in this movie. Like, no, so when she showed up, I was like, what? Like, oh, what? <laughs> um, it's an all-star cast. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a there's a prostitute who shows up a couple of times, who's a great character, and she is played by an actress whose name I cannot think of at the moment, who plays a nun on the Nick. It took me a second because she's aged like a normal person, and so looks quite a bit older now. And also is playing a very different character. And I just was like, what? (laughs) She was one of my favorite performances in the movie. She's very, very good. Because there's so many scenes where, you know, she has to put up with this garbage and she's like barely even putting a veneer on of giving a shit. Well, she has the most awareness, I think. Yeah. Of what is going on. I find it really interesting that 
they do i mean obviously the whole idea is because he's a wall street guy he gets a lot of leeway you know etc etc but i find it quite interesting from the perspective that the film is extremely good at giving you that palpable sense of this guy's a huge creep from every single scene christian bale's performance is amazing there's definitely you can tell women in the film are getting creeped out by him but they're also suppressing that so there's a couple of women where you're just like why are you so dumb (laughs) you know and then there's his secretary character where it's like you're a bad decision maker girl (laughs) but um but there's also it's sort of the thing where i don't know what the term is but it's sort of the reverse of self-preservation when people especially women have alarm bells ringing and then tamp it down because they're like obviously there can't be a problem here and it's like if alarm bells are ringing you're speaking to christian bale and american psycho why i'm such a standoffish bitch (laughs) (laughs) yeah the sort of tendency to be like well of course couldn't be that bad he is (laughs) yeah when they're having this conversation with him and chloe savini where he's like if you stay any longer you're gonna get hurt and she's like well you know i wouldn't want to get bruised like talking about her emotional state and i'm like this man lives in a refrigerator and (laughs) he's just oh god it's really it's all stunning (laughs) oh my god so good just amazing and what i find hilarious and dire is that one of the promotional tactics of this movie is that you'd receive um promo emails like in-universe promo emails um that were from weirdly from after the movie so it kind of assumes either it assumes that there's no spoilers in the emails or it assumes you've read the book but the emails are from patrick bateman to his therapist and apparently during the kind of sequel post-movie period he's married his secretary and he's talking about his marriage to his secretary and his son and i'm like this doesn't seem like how the film would end but okay right and apparently Weird christian bale decision. was like i object strongly to this <laughs> like ah uh, no uh which i also would have were i in his position yeah um yeah, the I f- yeah, it's quite entertaining that some studios have still not moved past over the past fifteen years really bad internet marketing tactics. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they're really good. Like the X Men movies have a lot of good tie in stuff for some reason, and you know Prometheus's internet tie in stuff was better than the movie. But then there are some films where they're still like, we're going to send promotional emails that are from a character in the movie, but it takes place after the film, so we spoil you. And it's like, <laughs> just, just give us a trailer. Just stop. Calm down, please. please. <laughs> yeah. Well. Well, sort of tying into that, right, one of the interesting things about the film is that they actually don't really give into the temptation to make him someone who is just really tortured, and that's why he's murdering all these people. Like, he's just bad. So in the scene with his secretary, Chloe Sevigny, that is the sort of only scene where he is... Well, there are two scenes, but this is the only one where he's really tempted to murder someone in an extremely sort of easy position to do so, and he doesn't. And I liked that they had sort of one of those scenes because she is the only person he has any kind of functional relationship with. I mean, like, relationship. But (laughs) she clearly cares a lot about him for mysterious reasons. And, like, he kind of decides to kill her but it seems like he doesn't really want to and it is this compulsion and i think it is good that they give you a like one instance of him kind of being like actually like i don't i don't really want to do this please leave but that's not humanizing per se right it's just complicating yeah so they don't really give you i guess a positive perspective 
Uh, there's no kind of really no. relatable character. And um, the point is that like all of the men who are surrounding him are also awful. And there's this great scene where they're just talking about women. And obviously they're all just being colossally misogynistic and awful because they all have terrible relationships. Um, actually, as a side note, I really enjoyed the fact that they were all cheating on each other's spouses. Like yes. he was sleeping with like, his, his girlfriend and like all these other women. It didn't matter. And it, I was just like, it's really funny because they actually are all indistinguishable. And there's like scenes <laughs> where people are mistaking each other for each other because it's just all of these sort of tall muscular reasonably good looking kind of calvin klein model looking guys <laughs> with shiny hair and no personalities who are all wearing the same outfit so of course it's really easy to mistake you <laughs> um but yeah like they, they're all monsters and there's this great scene when they're talking about women and and then patrick bateman starts quoting a serial killer i don't think it's ted bundy in that scene but he he quotes some serial killers comments on women and then all of the guys are like kind of shocked and weirded out for a moment and it reminded me of i think maybe it was like a magazine article or possibly it was even a medical study where they took quotes from men's magazines like british lads mags and quotes from convicted rapists and tried to get guys to choose which one was which and they were completely indistinguishable because it was just all the same language about persuading women to have sex without consent yeah. Um, and how you're totally, you know, it's totally legitimate to just go out and rape people. And it's just like the context of the quote is the only thing that matters, even though the message is the thing that actually should matter in real life morally. But there's all these guys just acting like monsters. But because he's like, oh, yeah, by the way, this is what a serial killer said. They're suddenly all like, that's just shocking. <laughs> uh, but they're all just, I mean, the women in this, they're obviously more engaging because the worst thing the women are doing is being really shallow and materialistic. Whereas the men are being shallow and materialistic and monsters. <laughs> Yeah, the all the conversations that they have together at their like weird club type restaurants are just sublime. It reminded me also of Mr. Robot, but in a way that actually played. I don't like Mr. Robot very much. I only watched the first season, but there are some scenes in that in the first season that are similar, kind of like Wall Street guys having conversations where they seem terrible, but in a way that I thought like I know men are terrible, but people don't speak like this at all like this is not how yeah. people I mean the thing that I really like absurd. tonally about American Psycho's attitude to these guys is it's really condescending yes. uh, <laughs> because it's sort of like when you're just like oh you stupid little baby idiots because right? <laughs> right. that is that is actually what it is even though they're all really suave Patrick Bateman's character is transparently a very stupid man he's very stupid yes. and ill informed throughout the film he cannot lie to save his life he's just really dumb he makes extremely poor decisions and of course all of them have these jobs that are really non-specific that are just sitting in an office effectively doing nothing for the whole movie. And like whenever he's expressing an interest in something, he's just kind of reciting an essay about the music he's playing in the background of his sex scenes or whatever. He just sounds like someone's taken a pitchfork review <laughs> and is just reading it out loud, which is absolutely hysterical. <laughs> oh my god. And all yes. of the food they're eating as well, they've got the kind of this whole thing where they want to get into the must-see restaurants and um they have a lot of food scenes in the same way that Dexter and Hannibal really love all these luxury food filming. But um, unlike Hannibal, where the food is obviously incredible, and I'm in love with it, Hannibal is the best show ever made. Uh, <laughs> but but um, whereas in this, it's sort of like they have a lot of this kind of American luxury faux French food that's very well designed on the plate. But there's never a single moment where you see someone actually enjoying food. Yes. Because it's all just a status symbol and they have it kind of visually there in the background. It doesn't actually look that good. It looks like this stereotype no. of um, late 20th century American luxury dining, which I find very entertaining because I only ever see it in films. And I'm like, this is a really interesting look at how people have a certain attitude towards luxury dining that isn't to do with enjoying the experience. Yeah, I didn't want to eat any of it. I was sort of like, oh, this looks fancy, but... 
I don't think so. You barely see them eating it either. Yeah, you see a lot of working out, not yeah. a lot of eating. <laughs> yes. Patrick does a lot of crunches. It's his sort of preferred exercise of choice, is the crunch. Preferably with some horrible video playing behind him, yeah. showing something or other. There's a really interesting voiceover also, but at the beginning I wasn't sort of sure about. Like, it's clearly doing something, but I kind of thought, I think you maybe could achieve... Yeah, I was I was for... all over the voiceover because usually yeah, I'm very doubtful about voiceovers. I often think they're pointless or yeah. they've been like insisted on by the studio to explain stuff to the audience. But in this, I was just like fucking love the voiceover. Yeah, well, I was converted pretty quickly, um, and especially by the end, it's doing stuff that you definitely, without it, couldn't be done. And I think part of that also is that the Christian Bale's voice in this is just. Amazing. His tone. I think my favorite oh. scene for when Christian Bale is using his weird explaining voice is when he's talking about charity in the restaurant towards the beginning because he and all his horrible friends are having a conversation about something horrible and one of them is talking about, you know, a famine or something. And then he steps in with this really thoughtful, pre-prepared statement about all the terrible things in the world they have to solve first. And then someone else is like, wow, you're just so thoughtful and sensitive. And it's just like the worst thing he's ever said, because it's just like him just sounding terrible. Like he's got this very particular kind of tone of voice that he uses. Uh, Christian Bale's tone of voice in this movie is just it's sublime. Great. Well, and it was it sort of was making me think because people have been sort of talking about accents in movies recently because the trailer for Silence just came out, the new Scorsese film, uh, which is about Portuguese missionaries in Japan in like the 16th century or something, starring um, Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver. And the accents they do in the trailer for this film are not persuasive, shall we say? And there was something else... That, oh, Forrest Whitaker and Arrival also. I don't know what he was trying to do, but it was not... Uh, was that good? I don't really remember his accent. Oh my god. Oh my god. Every, it was like the thing that everyone was like, this movie was great, but what the fuck was Forrest Whitaker doing? Like, it was it was just funny. Like, it didn't matter in that because it was, wow. Whereas the silence one, I was just like, why do this? Like, why bother? I just always have find them, that like, very puzzling when they, uh, when they feel, when you have characters who are the central character and it's in English, but you give him them the accent of their country. By far, my least favorite is the American remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by David Fincher, <laughs> where they have, it's obviously set in Sweden, right? So the original is in Swedish. This one is in English, starring a cast predominantly of American actors, but like, you know, there's a couple of Swedish people thrown in. So they have Rooney Mara speaking in a Swedish accent, but Daniel Craig, who's also Swedish, is speaking in Daniel Craig's natural accent, right? <laughs> so it's like, I mean, I don't know if he couldn't do the accent or what, but it's just like, why have you bothered with this? I mean, I guess... <laughs> They're all you... speaking Swedish, but we're hearing it in English. Just allow the universal translator to do its work. <laughs> I guess if he really, really couldn't do it, better to just let him, you know... Yeah, I mean, but... their performances are fine. It's It's a reasonably good movie. The original was also probably better, but like... <laughs> yes, yes. But what was fascinating and impressive watching this, and I always think this watching Christian Bale, actually, who, as we know, is Welsh, um, and whatever he speaks in his normal accent, it's amazing to me because he usually plays Americans. Yeah. And you would never know that he was yeah. not American. And it's like him and Daniel Day-Lewis are the two, I always think, or just Kate Blanchett, too, I guess, in terms of modulating not only the the actual accent, but just the whole voice becomes a different thing. And yeah. it's so difficult and impressive 
And in this, like, it's not just that he doesn't sound like a Welsh person. It's like the whole voice is like this weird, fake person sound. Like, he doesn't sound like he has any feelings, which is because he doesn't have any feelings. And it's so creepy and great. He's like, ah. He is, I mean, you can absolutely see why Mary Harron had to have him. Yes. No one else would do this as well as he does. He's perfect. He's a wonderful actor. I wish he would do fewer serious man films that I don't want to watch, you know? <laughs> and also, small aside, his shiny face, tremendous. Because obviously in this film he has to be very glossy and he's always extremely well moisturised and his hair is fantastic. But um, if you watch Chris and Beale in other movies, he does have a very shiny face. So coincidentally, his shiny <laughs> face really plays into the mannequin-like aspects of this film. <laughs> well, he has an amazing beauty routine, yeah. which is interesting in terms of the masculinity stuff going on yeah um the, the the introductory scene is very entertaining because he kind of goes through his beauty routine for his all his rejuvenation products and it's perhaps the only example of when something in a film you know there was all there was a lot of media that kind of uses feminization to indicate that a male character is amoral or flawed or in some way right i think this is the only case where i've watched it and been like this doesn't kind of strike me as subtextually homophobic I don't think, and I, no. but I was also just generally entertained by the fact that what he's doing is basically just like what women do. I was just like, yeah, you're just using the products that it's very normal for like a wealthy woman to be using yes. on her face. Yes, he's just so vain. Like he's yeah. so well, and also it, obviously the connotation is that like inside he is just an empty, yeah, nothing. But so his his exterior must be perfectly maintained at yeah. all times. Um, yeah, he's definitely yeah he's he's a person shell. Yes, but there's also there's an interesting moment where Matt Ross's character, Lewis, he, well, he has the best business card. And this is when Patrick sort of literally reacts in this sort of like erotic way that makes him very angry. And he follows him into the bathroom of this sort of like fancy, like it was almost like a hotel bar or something, and puts on these like leather gloves and is going to strangle him. And the guy sort of like turns around and thinks that he's about to kiss him. And basically says like, oh, it's been so like it's been so long, and like finally, <laughs> this is not what uh, Patrick was expecting. And instead of killing him, he like freaks out and like washes the gloves off and basically <laughs> yeah. like, runs away. And, like, Please, <laughs> yeah. And uh, someone on Twitter was saying to me yesterday that one of the sort of theories about the movie is that he can't kill anyone who loves him, which I thought was quite interesting because. This guy survives. Chloe Sevigny survives. Reese Witherspoon, whom he's allegedly engaged, engaged to, to. <laughs> but like not really survives. And like obviously there are other people in the movie, but like th those are the sort of three interesting ones. But what was more interesting to me about that scene is that that's the only time really where you see him completely destabilized. Like he freaks out later in the film that this is sort of a different thing, and. I mean, it's the tenderest moment. It's the time oh, that someone yeah, actually expresses sure. tenderness to him. Yeah, and that if the movie is all about this obsessive performance of masculinity to the extent that he's literally, like, murdering people to demonstrate his, you know, power, that this is the thing that would just send him, like, ah! <laughs> I can't! What does this mean? Like, nope, just get me out of here. Which, again, I feel is... Obviously, that's not a moment, like, only a woman could have done, and like Brandy Snellis, who wrote the book, is gay. But I think probably benefited from not being directed by a straight man. It would be my my theory on this, because it's not done in a way that's remotely homophobic 
I mean, the co-writer of Guinevere Turner is gay. She she wrote a lot of the L word and uh, collaborated with uh, the director on a bunch of movies. Yeah, and I just thought that was interesting. It's just sort of one little moment in the movie, but I think it adds to it a lot. And Matt Ross is just so funny. He has the worst haircut of anyone in the film. (laughs) (laughs) And also sort of makes you think about what the movie is really doing because the book, I think, was read as a like commentary on capitalism. This is what Wikipedia tells me. I have not read the novel, <laughs> as I said, but makes sense in terms of it being all about these like horrible yuppies in Wall Street and blah, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And obviously that's in this film as well. But I think it's quite clear that what this movie is really about is masculinity and how men are terrible and <laughs> all of this. And it's interesting to sort of see that potential shift, if this is really the shift, from the book to the film in terms of sort of authorship. And Brett Easton Ellis apparently didn't like the film, didn't want it to be made, and sort of thought that this book wasn't a book that needed to be made into a movie, and on and on and on. This at least was what he said at the time. I don't know if his opinion has changed. But I think it's kind of telling. There's also a musical of this now, which is just like, okay. Fascinating. Yeah, starring Matt Smith. Sure. Downgrade. No comment. But uh, why don't we talk about the ending now? Yes. We didn't actually give a spoiler warning towards the beginning of the podcast, but if you've not seen the movie, you've made it this far, and you don't want to be spoiled for the ending, we are going to discuss that now. Yes. So I knew the sort of twist at the end of this before I watched it, and it didn't take away from it at all. No. But um, I don't think it's as common knowledge as some other movies of this type. I think everyone knows what happens at the end of Fight Club, for instance. But this is the same movie. It's wild. <laughs> it's amazing that this was in development hell for all of the 90s, and Fight Club was also being made. And obviously they're both based on novels, so... Yeah. You know, it's not like one of them was copying the other one. Uh, but you find out at the end... Patrick Bateman basically has a breakdown. He goes on a yeah. killing spree. He calls his lawyer to um, admit to everything. And then in the final scenes of the movie, on the morning after, he goes and talks to his lawyer. And his lawyer thinks that it's a prank phone call. And essentially the murders didn't happen. He goes to the house that he thinks belongs to one of the men he killed. And it's just an empty showroom house. And then his secretary finds a notebook full of all his little really bad drawings of him like murdering women and stuff. And the film kind of ends with a final monologue of him talking about how he's reached the depths of depravity and no one noticed and nothing matters. Yeah, well, and also when he says, like, he's talking to the lawyer and the lawyer's like, oh yeah, it was a great practical joke, Davis. And I could tell it was fake because it couldn't have been Patrick. Patrick was, is like the least likely person to have done any of this. Yeah. And so, again, the, like, Fight Club parallels here are just amazing. And it's also hilarious they wanted Ed Norton to do this film as well, right? So Ed Norton was on the list of people they were trying to make this movie with. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's the same thing, but it's more ambiguous, because there isn't really a Patrick Bateman figure you see. Right. But it's kind of unclear whether that's a pseudonym or what, or whether people are just all mistaking each other for each other, because they're all fucking identical clones. Right. Well, but what's great about it is that I think it's very obvious that none of this has happened but they don't come out and explicitly say it and like as the movie goes along it's it becomes more and more implausible so like he chases the prostitute down the hall with a chainsaw with a chainsaw it's quite naked covered in blood (laughs) so even if you are becoming more and more crazy this seems like a bad idea and no one she's like running screaming down the hall banging on everyone's door and no one comes out there are some questions here about like 
plausibility of this. And there's like a, a scene near the end where he's breaking up with Reese Witherspoon where he's drawing that same murder. So the implication is that this is all happening in his head and not in reality. And the sort of last scene where he goes on his killing spree and is just shooting people randomly also feels yeah he like blows up a car with a bullet from his gun like they have this like police car that blows sky high and he kind of looks at his gun in puzzlement you know right and (laughs) it's just great because like compared to fight club which um i've actually not seen in a few years but i do remember really enjoying and i think i probably would have more criticisms now but i think i'd probably still think it's a good movie that film ends on this like massive climax whereas this movie is kind of anticlimactic and condescending once again because it's just like these characters are idiots whereas fight club far more so is in this position of a lot of people misinterpreting it like even david fincher has kind of talked about how loads of people just don't understand the extent to which fight club is a critique of masculinity and it's kind of all about you know this guy getting men to join a cult because they don't understand what's going on and then it just ends on this like really dumb note or i mean not not like unintentionally dumb but um kind of the message is confused and a lot of people misinterpret it. And also, you know, it kickstarted the ridiculously overblown fitness trend to try and make people's torsos look like Brad Pitt, you know. Right. Everyone has to be shredded because of Fight Club. Whereas this movie, it's extremely difficult to misinterpret this movie from a positive <laughs> angle. Like, I can't really imagine watching this movie and being like, this is an, an impressive goal in any way. Like, the only thing you can really... I can really imagine people being like, that's good, is wanting to look like Christian Bale. Right. Uh, which is difficult, so good luck. Right, good luck with that one. Well, this gets back to the Wolf of Wall Street thing, right? Because Fight Club, obviously... Well, we were talking about this last night, that Fight Club has sort of become such a cultural signifier that it's hard to watch and not have all this stuff in mind. And also it's very much um, from a male point of view because they have these dual central characters like the yes. alpha and the beta male thing which yeah. buys into all of these ideas that guys talk about on Reddit about masculinity which yeah. is like quite damaging even though that's not the intentional message. Whereas this is like you are not going to engage with Patrick Bateman on a personal level unless you are literally a psychopath serial killer. <laughs> right. But what happened with Fight Club basically is that you can watch it from sort of our perspective and say, oh, this is pretty fucked up. Or you can watch it from many men's perspective and be like, yeah, <laughs> this is aspirational. And that clearly was not the intention of the movie at all, but that was what kind of happened. Whereas I think with Wolf of Wall Street, they were kind of trying to get to that middle point. And like, I don't think Fincher was trying to do that at all, but that is nevertheless what happened. Which is why I am inclined to be more sympathetic to Fight Club than I am to Wolf of Wall Street, even though I yeah. watched it a long time ago and I think it would bug me now. Whereas this movie, as you say, is not in that place at all. It's it's quite clear about what it's saying. And yet I think is also more subtle by not explicitly telling you what's going on. But like there's a bunch of stuff where he'll kind of say to people yeah, like, I like murdering people or whatever, and they don't really hear him. So there's this sort of destabilized feeling the whole time. You don't really feel like what's going on is real, and indeed it's not. But the feeling that the movie produces... um, It's a lot more artistically interesting in terms of the whole package, you know, the visual design and the soundtrack and the performance choices and the comedic beats, because... Wolf of Wall Street is like a comedy, right? I mean, I've not seen it, but um, yeah. Fight Club is not exactly a laugh riot, you know? <laughs> and uh, The Big Short is obviously a comedy, but I just find that it's like kind of my ultimate example of when people 
don't engage with the difference between the portrayal of the characters and the attitude of the film. So I wrote a whole thing about how bad this film is from my perspective. I think it's extremely good from the functional perspective of documentary style explanation of the financial crash. In that sense, it's successful. But otherwise, I hate it because I find it very misogynist. You know, they kind of erased like this uh, woman from the kind of general history of the financial crash research and stuff. And it's also very sexist towards the women who are in the film. But one of the kind of defenses people have of this movie is like, oh, well, it's such a realistic portrayal of how all these guys are douchebags and they're all really sexist and they're terrible and materialistic and, and, and they don't have any empathy for the common man. And I'm like, when you watch this film, the film doesn't really either. The film is sort of like, hey, isn't it bad that this thing happened? But it doesn't engage on like a kind of human level. And it basically does actually glorify the douchey attitude of these characters. Um, So I think like if you're already someone who thinks that the financial crash is bad, which is most people, you're maybe going to watch it on a certain level and be like, yeah, great portrayal of these douchebags. And it's like, these guys are the heroes. They are shaping the entire story. And they're already cool and they're played by like handsome Hollywood stars. <laughs> right. Including Christian Bale. Yeah. Ironically. Although he's um, not uh well I think he's playing the most interesting character. Yeah. To my I mean mind, he's playing a very movie. realistic portrayal of a guy who seems like a parody of like Hollywood genius eccentric characters. Yes. Like he goes around with those shoes on and stuff and like I mean apparently that's exactly what the guy's like in real life. But um I was going to say not yeah. playing a, a particularly glamorous individual like he's not um, most beautiful in that film but like that's kind of the fight club problem where it's like you're portraying stuff that's terrible but a lot of people are just gonna be like this is cool whereas there's just no chance of that happening with american psycho no and the the monologue the last scene he's basically saying that um he's still in this miserable state and that he has told us all of this stuff that has happened you know in quotes but that it hasn't meant anything and that there has been no catharsis. And I had a kind of funny moment where the the sort of thing happens when you're working really hard on something in school and slowly everything that you do and watch and consume becomes about that thing. Um, and the essay I'm writing at the moment is kind of about, um, it's about a lot of things. One of them is about sort of like the value of therapeutic speech. And the whole point he's making is that he has done that i.e. he has been explaining all this stuff in speech and sort of the implication is that what we've seen is him telling us all of this as it would have been in the book but that it hasn't had the effect that it's supposed to for a normal person which is to sort of exercise your demons or you know helps you get over your trauma he's such a broken person inside that like it just doesn't do anything and like his sort of big breakdown scene when he's confessing all of these murders he's clearly in a state like it's a great performance but it's not contrite yeah it's just a very weird moment like he's crying he's really upset but it's it's not like he's saying like oh my god i'm so horrible i've done these horrible things like he's just kind of listing it all off but it's something you often see like in really in like high profile really horrifying kind of murder and rape cases that are in the press like you often see people saying like look he's crying in the dark and it's like it's always someone who's you know they're crying because they feel sorry for themselves but like there's no kind of expression of contrition yeah but to see a movie with Again, we were kind of talking about this earlier, like a character who's this horrible where they just don't attempt to make him in any way sympathetic. Yeah, which just makes all of the 
puritanical coverage all the funnier right uh, after watching this film it's like people do definitely get murdered but there's an awful lot of horror movies that are just straight up slasher movies where kind of the function of the film is to enjoy the fear of running away from a monster with a chainsaw you know that's the function of that subgenre right which is not really this it's much more complex it's very funny and it's not positive like if you're someone who comes away from this movie being like yeah it seems like a really great idea you're probably already a murderer (laughs) (laughs) whereas fight club i'm pretty sure people started fight clubs (laughs) yes yes that happened that was real i don't think probably that many people i I guess there was one guy who like obsessively read the book like a, a guy who killed someone but I would doubt that that many people watched this movie and aspirationally turned into Patrick Bateman types. And if they did, they probably were on their way anyway. So, yeah. Just a, a great film. Highly recommended. They mentioned the Trumps a few times. I believe the Trumps were, or Donald Trump was in some way an inspiration for the book, at least, since he was indeed the archetypal 80s horrible yeah new york man which is just amazing to think about (laughs) although the performance inspiration for christian bale is apparently tom cruise which as soon as morgan told me this i was like that is perfect (laughs) let me find the quote i remember i think i actually read that before but i'd forgotten because i hadn't actually seen the um the film and i read it again and i was like oh it's kind of a bit like tom cruise's glassy eyes and kind of smile um it's really yeah really interesting especially that uh, Christian Bale was picking up on that in, I'm guessing, the late 90s when he was in his mid 20s. <laughs> yes. The actor struggled... Very insightful man. <laughs> yeah. So the quote from Wikipedia is The actor struggled with the role until he noticed Tom Cruise in an interview on The Late Night with David Letterman being struck by Cruise's energy and, quote, intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes, end quote. I also love that he said that to someone. Like, just just admitted it to. Someone in the Guardian, I in two thousand nine. Wow, two thousand nine as well. Well, I guess it's after his Batman success, so he was like, "Don't need to care." Fuck <laughs> it, whatever. Also, Christian Bale has historically been a person who does not seem to censor himself. Yeah, much. well, I mean, I I I, I you know. think quite highly of him thanks to the fact that he waited around for Mary Harron for months to make this movie. I've her, always liked him. Like, Leonardo DiCaprio has never made a movie with a woman director. He was pushing for this film to be like Scorsese and stuff, like just again ironic in light of uh... just drop me into the ocean. <laughs> no, I am extremely fond of of Christian Bale. Uh, the stories about the, the David O. Russell thing with Amy Adams also. Uh... Oh yeah, he kind of David O. Russell was being a nightmare to Amy Adams, as is his want. He is an yes. awful man to everyone especially women who are working for him and like christian bale basically kind of stood in front of amy adams and told this is the story to like fuck off anyway but i would i would allegedly i would i would believe this to be true he seems like a very like principled person my theory about him is that he has like an extremely clear set of principles that probably are unintelligible to anyone but himself but that he like abides by them wow it's you know it's almost like he's batman Exactly. Well, I also saw I was an extra on the set of The Fighter, by which I mean they needed a bunch of people to be in an auditorium or like a stadium um, 
when they were shooting like the big climactic fight scene at the end so like we were not close um but it was cool to watch because they did the scene many many times and so you got to sort of see how it works who Um, directed the fighter david o russell oh right okay but it was his first movie back from basically being exiled after i heard huckabees when he had had like a nervous breakdown and so i believe he was on good behavior on that movie uh, cause he, he needed to be or else he was going to get, he was never going to make a movie again. I, he certainly didn't do anything that I could see when I was just from far away. Like he seemed like he was fine. And Christian Bale was like standing in the corner of like the ring. He talked very intensely to David O. Russell. And then he would like put in his earbuds on his iPhone and just like stand in the corner and like intensely sort of be like not talking to himself, but clearly like conversing with himself in some deep way. And I said to my friend, I looked at her and I said, he's going to win an Oscar for this. And then a year later, lo and behold, he did indeed. Well, this was also like not long after that tape had leaked of him freaking out at the lighting guy yeah, on Terminator set. And everyone was like, he's crazy. And I remember watching this and thinking, yeah, that guy must have really fucked up because this man does not seem like someone who would just like freak out all over the place. It was it was quite an experience, but I felt very good about my Oscar prognostication skills after that. He was very impressive. It's too bad I'm not going to watch that movie. It's really good. It's not like they box the whole time. There's not actually very well, much boxing Well, I'm a big fan of Rocky. General. I love Rocky deeply. I was overjoyed <laughs> I when I watched Rocky for the first time last year and discovered that it was a romance. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm not going to watch basically any other movie about men just punching each other. <laughs> There's almost no punching in the fighter at all. There's lots of, like, Boston family stuff, which, as we know, is my favorite. And Amy Adams being, like, a bartender, which was great. Anyway, nothing to do with American Psycho. Yes, but I also we have gone on a tangent. Recommend that film <laughs> about our friend Christian Bale, who we will discuss at some point in the distant future when we talk about the Batman trilogy. <laughs> yes, not the best part of the Batman trilogy, but I love him. Anyway, uh, I think you're going to take next week off because I have to write an essay on Percy Shelley and also <laughs> psychoanalysis. I have spent yeah. a week in the library reading psychoanalytic texts. And we'll be spending more time doing that and have no time for anything else. So next week, you can take a dip into our now extensive back catalogue of tremendous podcasts, which you can lovingly give positive reviews for (laughs) on iTunes, if you so wish. Yeah, maybe we'll repost something. We'll do something. We'll we'll give you some content, but it will not be new, unfortunately. But the week after that is Star Wars Rogue One, which is crazy to me that this is coming out already, but time has flown. So there will be nothing next week, but big stuff the week after. So that's exciting. But yeah, as ever, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com and Twitter at overinvestedpod and on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye. <laughs>